unto others as you would have them do unto you. This well-known saying is also known as the golden rule, and it's taken in part both from the Gospel of Luke and Hillel the Elder. Simply put, it means to treat others the way you want to be treated. The moral principle behind the golden rule is admirable, but it's not always how things happen in the real world. If it were, there would be less crime and fewer conflicts. But what if you were living in a virtual world? Might it be possible to experience the harmful actions you take from the perspective of the victim? Could these VR experiences enhance our helping behavior? I'm Charles Blue, and you're listening to Under the Cortex, supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. With me is Mel Slater of the Institute of Neurosciences at the University of Barcelona, and author on a paper published in the journal Current Directions in Psychological Science about what he calls the golden rule embodiment paradigm. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Please explain as we start what you were hoping to do in this research and what you were hoping to find out. Well, we've noticed in several experiments that we've carried out with virtual reality that it can be helpful in different aspects of rehabilitation. So, for example, for many years, we've been working with the Justice Department here in Catalonia, where we take uh, men who have been convicted of gender violence, of domestic violence, and we use virtual reality as part of their rehabilitation program where they're put into a virtual reality, but embodied as a woman, they have a woman's body, and then they're verbally attacked by a man kind of reproducing typical domestic violence scenes. And we found that this helps in the rehabilitation process of these men. And we've done other examples as well. So what I wanted to do in this paper is to bring together these different examples under the one umbrella of this golden rule embodiment paradigm, the major principle of which is that you experience how it is like to be a victim of your own behavior. This research then is not solely on domestic violence. You took a broader approach looking at other antisocial negative behaviors. Could you please explain a little bit what else you were looking into to broaden the definition of the golden rule? Yes. So uh, our first example that I'd like to talk about is about sexual harassment, which is sexual harassment of men against women. Um, In this scenario in virtual reality, the participant is a man seated amongst a group of other men in a bar, and there's a lone woman sitting across the way. They're doing everyday chat, how are you, and so on. And then one of the men calls out to the woman to join them, and she ignores the men. And then they call out again, can you come and join us? And she says, leave me alone. Haven't you got anything better to do? And then they start harassing her more and more. Uh, until finally this goes on for a while and uh, one of the men stands up to try to drag her over and then the scenario ends. Then in the second round, the whole thing is replayed again exactly as it happens, but now the participant is in the body of the woman and re-experiences everything that happened, including their own prior acquiescent behavior or complicit behavior. They experience it from her point of view. Or alternatively, they re-experience it as one of the men. Or there's another control group where they're in the bar, but nothing at all happens. So that that was our first example. Um, What we did to test it, though, is that a week after that experience, they were again embodied in virtual reality, but this time as themselves, as, as a man. And they were required to carry out 
um, what's become known over the last 50 years as the Milgram Obedience Experiment, where they're asked to give electric shocks as part of a supposed word learning exercise to another character. That character is virtual and it's represented as a woman. And they were encouraged to give shocks whenever she gave a wrong answer to a question. So what we measured was how many shocks would they give? And what we found is that those the week before who'd been embodied as the victim, as the woman, they gave far less shocks than those the week before who'd been re-embodied in the second round of the scenario as a man. And the, the control group were in between those two. So we found that this experience of being the victim a week before influenced their behavior the week later. They were less aggressive. They ignored the instructions of the other male experimenters to carry on giving these shocks. So this is one example. Uh, we have another example concerned with the behavior of police in the United States in an inner urban set setting in their relationship with uh, with the African-American people. Shall I explain that one? That sounds absolutely fascinating. It certainly is a topic we've been looking into here at APS. So how did that experiment work out? Yeah, yes. So what we did in that experiment is that we visited a, a police station in an inner city in the northeast part of the US, but I can't say any more than that. And the police were very cooperative. And what we did was that they were embodied as a policeman, as basically as themselves, and they were interviewing a black suspect who was accused of doing a robbery. So they had a virtual police partner who was extremely aggressive and racially abusive towards the black suspect. Uh, and um, this interview carried on for a while. Uh, and in the end, there was a hint that there was going to be violence, but then it stopped. Then in the second round, they re-experienced the whole thing again, but this time as the victim, as the actual suspect. So they re-experienced -re the whole interview from that point of view. So again, any behavior that they'd done before, whether being complicit or actually themselves aggressive, they re-experienced their own behavior. So this was the first part of the experiment. Then a few weeks later, they, we, we went back again. We carried out the second part of the experiment where it's simply you're in a cafe with, the, with your police friend who'd been involved in the interview, the aggressive one. You're just chatting. And then an African-American person simply walks into the cafe and is immediately accosted by your police partner, virtual police partner and who accuses that, that customer of wanting to steal a woman's handbag. Um, and this went on, became more and more aggressive. And in the end, he pulls his gun out on that customer. And what we were interested there is, would you as a policeman intervene to try to stop the aggression of your partner? And what we found again is that those who a few weeks before had been in the victim position, they were far more likely to try to stop the aggression of their partner against this completely innocent customer. So what we found in both examples and in the gender violence one I mentioned earlier is that this replay of being a victim of your own aggressive behavior or even complicit behavior is enough to kind of change your behavior in a later scenario. So this is the basic idea of the embodiment paradigm, the golden rule embodiment paradigm. You, you experience harm that you've done to another from their perspective. Did you get any feedback from the participants about how immersive it was, how they felt being either themselves or 
someone else for this brief period of time? Yes. So um, we did interviews to participants afterwards. And in the gender violence one, many of the men would express the fact that they didn't realize their behavior was bad. They thought it was normal. Uh, they, it's completely different from, say, watching a video about this kind of thing on television because they were personally involved. And similarly, with a sexual harassment one, they would say, ah, from the point of view of the woman, I realize that these men are just idiots. They're just stupid. And why should I take any notice of anything they say? which then affected their behavior in the test scenario that happened a week later. And similarly with the, with, with the police, that they expressed kind of these ideas that um, they didn't know exactly how it felt to be on the receiving end. And, and again, this affected their behavior in the cafe scenario that happened a few weeks later. So the virtual reality is very immersive because if you look down at yourself, you'll see a body replacing your your real body and in our whole lives whenever we look down and we've seen a body it's been our body so the brain becomes very convinced that this is your body at least at a perceptual level of course we know cognitively it's not the case but it becomes basically you react as if you would in reality even though you might later say to yourself i don't know why i did that because nothing was happening so it is very very immersive are these fully computer-generated bodies? Do they appear fairly lifelike? How close to looking at the world around us do these people experience their new reality? No, they're clearly, it doesn't have the high fidelity of real-life perception. They're clearly cartoonish-looking characters. I don't mean cartoon in the Disney sense, but they're obviously they're computer-generated. But that doesn't matter. We found in research over many years that people respond to what they see. So, for example, if you're with a virtual character and the character is looking at you and smiling, then you smile back. Even It doesn't matter how real the character looks. You just respond to the emotions being expressed at you. So it's true that it doesn't look real. But in our research and also of others, it's found that's not so important as the actions that happened and your automatic responses to those actions. I'd like to make a comparison now with the difference between this virtual reality embodiment and video games that have become very popular over the past 10 or so years. And the one Grand Theft Auto comes to mind. This is where players are often rewarded for egregious acts of antisocial behavior, for violence, for <laughs> just the most heinous of behaviors. What is the difference about the gaming platform and the VR platform for the person who's actually performing the actions? I guess we're going from a, a second person to a first person. Yes, it's actually quite different in several senses. So I'm looking at a screen now and I'm immersed in talking with you, but all I have to do is do that and it's, you're no longer there. So the, the setting that you're in is very important because as I mentioned in virtual reality, both with hearing and seeing, wherever you look, you're seeing the virtual reality. You're not seeing the real reality behind it. The second thing is that on the computer gaming, you're interacting with characters, but how big are they? They're like this big, you know, they're very small. They're not in the same space as you. However big they are on the screen, they never come up to you, up to your face in this, this kind of distance. So it has quite a different qualitative meaning 
here I'm interacting with something on a screen compared with being with someone, being with other, even if they're virtual people, being with other characters who are in the same space as me. And from some point of view of, of the brain can actually affect me, can, can touch me, can hit me and so on, even if I know that wouldn't really happen because I wouldn't feel anything. So it's quite a different experience. And the other one is context. So in the game, these are completely fantasy worlds. Uh, they don't have any relation to most people's real life. Whereas in the kind of ex experiences I've been talking about, they are directly from real life, like a police interview, a sexual harassment scenario, gender violence, and so on. So the context is different, both in terms of the meaning of the content and the way it's delivered to you, the way that your, your brain perceives it. There's a rather amusing series of short videos on a number of social media platforms meant for amusement. They show people who are in these virtual reality suits, and they're very complex, full headgear, hands and feet. They're tethered to the ceiling and the wall, so they have this full range of motion, and they're playing some sort of interactive or combat game. And they, they shriek, they move, they dodge as if they really are experiencing it. It's almost as if there's this complete transportation to a different world, and it seems to have a direct impact on how they're experiencing things in real time. Is that the level of experience that your participants are having, that they seem to be, the longer they're involved in it, the more real it seems? Well, actually, they really are experiencing it. You know, if, if I go in virtual reality and I see a precipice in front of me, in spite of my knowing that this is virtual reality, my heart rate zooms up and I step back. I really experience that. The experience itself is real. The cause of the experience is not, well, it's digital, it's not real life, it's not physical life, it's digital life, but my experience itself is real. So yes, this is the kind of experiences that uh, people have in these kind of virtual reality environments, um, provided it's done correctly. They will at that moment have, for them, a real experiences caused by an unreal medium. What also happens is that after you've spent some time in these environments and then you take off the head-mounted display, you're often surprised, one, where you are, and second, the direction you're facing. You've completely lost contact with the real world. You're a wonderful salesperson for my wanting to go out and try one of these virtual reality simulators because it, it sounds compelling, but I can't yet in my mind envision that. I think I have to experience it personally. I take it you've had the opportunity to try out the headset and see what it feels like for yourself. Oh, yes, of course. I've been doing this for 30 years. Can I just give you a warning, which is that there's many bad experiences out there. So don't ever do one where they say, hey, you're going to have a roller coaster ride, because if you do that, you'll just get sick. You won't have uh, any, any good experience at all. So you have to be choosy about what your first experience is. That's good advice. And I avoid roller coasters anyway. So <laughs> virtual reality or not, I can avoid that. How has that technology changed? You said you've been doing it for 30 years. If you were to go back 30 years, would you be able to envision how realistic it is today? Has it been that big of a change? Well, yes and no. In terms of the basic ideas, it's the same now as 30 years ago. You wear a head-mounted display. It tracks your head movements. It gives you a stereo image. Uh, your hands at least attract and so on. All of this is the same. What's the difference is both the speed of the computers that generate this. Back then, 30 years ago, we needed really powerful 
parallel processing computers that cost $50,000. And now today you can run it on a, on a mobile phone. And the uh, second thing is the hardware. So the old head mounted displays were very heavy. The resolution in the screens was very low. The tracking was magnetic and it often went wrong. So everything has improved, not just 30 years ago, but even five years ago. So everything has changed, but the fundamental concepts are the same. That brings me to my final question then. What else can your research teach us and what else do you want to explore with this technology? So one of the fundamental things is there's a lot of talk about ethics of virtual reality and the metaverse and this kind of thing, but there's very, very little data about that. So I'd like to do some studies that really do address whether there are ethical problems and get some empirical data on some of these. And uh, we made a start on that. We got a small grant from the Spanish Ministry of Science to carry out some studies in relation to the ethics of virtual reality. So for example, we can use virtual reality techniques to reduce racial bias. We want to know, is it possible to make someone biased against some arbitrary group just by using these same techniques? Of course, the group we would choose would be fictional. It wouldn't be a real group. Otherwise, we ourselves will be breaking ethics. But can you induce biases where they didn't exist before? So we know we can reduce biases, but can they be induced? So there's many questions around the use of virtual reality that really need to be studied empirically. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to do some of those. We seem to be right on the cusp of the world explained uh, in the book Neuromancer uh, by William Gibson, which is sort of the the grandfather of the cyberpunk culture and the first exploration of this living in a virtual reality. So it's an exciting but uh, curious time, and I'd be delighted to learn more about how this research plays out. I'd like to thank you for joining me. This is Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you've been listening to Under the Cortex, and I've had with me Mel Slater of the Institute of Neurosciences at the University of Barcelona. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Introducing Macmillan Learning's Achieve for Psychology, setting a whole new standard for integrating assessments, activities, and analytics into your teaching. Coming in 2022, Achieve brings together everything instructors and students love about our digital course content, including interactive ebooks, learning curve adaptive quizzing, additional assessments, immersive learning activities, extensive instructor resources, and more, all in a powerful yet easy to use new platform. And we'd like you to have an exclusive first look and tell us what you think. Go to macmillanlearning.com slash under the cortex to sign up for a preview activity today. Macmillan's Achieve for Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.